Let's get it. Wednesday, November 6th, 2019. Born the Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. That's it. Look, if you're not a Marine, I'm sorry. I'm a Marine. And you're going to get a Marine Corps birthday episode. The Veterans Day episode will be next week, which may also feature a Marine. Look, don't act stunned. Other than episodes 168 and 161, we haven't had many Marines on lately. And this is the reason why. I've been saving them. been saving them for the Marine birthday. And... Saving them for this time of the year. On that subject, on the blog of episode 168, there is now an editor's comment from our editor-in-chief. If you want to read it, you can go to that blog at blogs.va.gov. But I will tell you this. That blog did have two comments that I petitioned to have taken down. I'm going to tell you right now. I'm not bringing veterans on this show for you to try and tear them down. Look, I'm all for the First Amendment, but not when you go at the integrity of one of my guests. This show is here to build each other up and to share valuable information. Ethical journalism dictates that I ensure what we talk about is properly sourced. And I double check to ensure that what we talk about is on a record, on a duty 214, and therefore factual. Don't tear down fellow service members. That helps nobody. On a more positive note, one review on iTunes this week, and we have reached 100 ratings. Not 100 ratings and reviews, but 100 ratings on their own. Thank you for that as both the ratings and reviews get us higher in the iTunes algorithms and allows more people to find the information provided in these episodes. So thank you for that. And please, go ahead, leave a rating, leave a review. Uh, Many thanks. The one this week is from Scotto3345. Great work. Thank you for this podcast. It's full of good information, and I really enjoy the veterans helping veterans feel. Keep it going. From Army veteran Scott Cornwell. Scott, thank you so much for chiming in. As always, this show is uh, from a veteran's perspective, and I I do appreciate those that, that let me know that that's how you want it, and I will keep that format for you. However, I can tell you this, we are going to be launching a VA podcast network early next year in January, and there is a podcast, and we're going to interview the host and the producer, whose focus will be on non-veterans, they've never served, but they still feel the need to serve veterans. As it gets closer to the end of the year, we will be introducing and interviewing their host and letting you guys know a little bit more about that show. All right, so let's take a look at this week's news releases. First one says, for immediate release, VA Health and Human Services partnered to improve health care protections for veterans. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs and the Department of Health and Human Services Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or otherwise known as CMS, recently announced that the two agencies will compare information on questionable veteran health care providers, both in VA treatment facilities and through purchase care programs in their communities. 
VA and CMS expect the first Medicare sanctioned data exchange to occur, to occur by the end of the year and continue at reoccurring intervals. Medicare sanctions include abusive billing practices, felony convictions, or improper prescribing practices. Employing CMS protocols provides VA with a proven tool to use data to address potential problems earlier and more systematically. VA will carefully review matches to determine employees' continued suitability for VA employment and providers' continuing participation in community care programs and will take swift action to protect veterans. This data match for provider enrollment information is one of the many efforts planned as part of the VA and CMS partnership first announced in 2018. The agencies are actively exploring additional data sharing focused on identifying fraud, waste, and abuse in healthcare payouts. For more information on the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, you can go to cms.gov. So the next one kind of goes into the last episode when we talked about the legacy uh, appeals process. It says VA finalizes plan to resolve legacy appeals by the end of 2022. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs announced today that it has finalized its plan for resolving legacy appeals across the department and expects to complete the remaining legacy appeals by the end of calendar year 2022. Legacy appeals are claims for which the VA provided notice of decision prior to the implementation of the Veteran Appeals Improvement and Modernization Act of 2017, otherwise known as AMA, and the claimant has not elected to participate in the AMA process. Short note, I'm one of them. In response to the growing number of legacy appeals, VA implemented AMA as of February 19 this year, giving veterans more choice and control over the process of their appeals. This past year, VA decreased the number of pending legacy appeals despite receiving thousands of new appeals. VA is successfully reducing legacy appeals while also working AMA appeals to ensure veterans receive their decisions in a timely manner. VA's three administrations, the Veterans Benefits Administration, Veterans Health Administration, and the National Cemetery Administration, plan to resolve their non-remand legacy appeals by the end of calendar year 2020. The Board of Veteran Appeals will continue to work appeals from the administrations and plans to resolve its legacy appeals inventory by the end of December 2022. Resolving legacy appeals aligns with the VA's strategic plan to modernize IT systems and processes and supports VA's mission to provide exceptional customer service to veterans and their families. Veterans who are waiting for the decisions are encouraged to check the status of the appeal via the appeals status tracker, and that is at va.gov forward slash claim hyphen or hyphen appeal hyphen status. And you can sign in and check the, the status of your claim. Uh, for more information about the appeals process, you can visit the VA's decision reviews and appeals va.gov forward slash decision hyphen reviews, or you could check the last benefits breakdown podcast, which is literally the last episode with the executive director of the appeals modernization office. All right, moving on. Number three, this one says for immediate release partnership for public service credits VA for customer experience improvements. The nonprofit nonpartisan partnership for public service in collaboration with the, uh, with Accenture federal services this month, released the study Government for the People Profiles on the Customer Experience. Go ahead and Google it. Finding that VA's customer experience improvement efforts are showing positive results, citing, re citing reduced wait times for appointments, same-day mental health access at all medical centers, 
and an improved online experience. The study also credits improved veteran trust of the department to reduce number of customer experience programs within the Veterans Health Administration. In September of 2019, 88% of veterans nationwide that were surveyed said they trust the VA for their health care needs when responding to an outpatient health care survey. In September, in September of 2019, 88% of veterans nationwide said they trust the VA for their health care needs when responding to an outpatient health care survey, up from 85% from a survey two years earlier. The percentage of veterans who say they trust the VA to fulfill their country's commitment to veterans increased to 72% in April 2019, up from, get this, 59% in July of 2016. Four of the essential indicators encourage a mature customer feedback program. Since 2016, the Veterans Signals Program has received more than 4.1 million veteran responses and has expanded to 35 surveys in real time across the department. These surveys also act as a call for help by respondents. To date, more than 1,350 crisis alerts have been sent to the Veterans Crisis Line or the National Call Center for Homeless within minutes of receipt. Big takeaway from that, fill out those customer surveys. People within the department are listening. And finally, for immediate release, VA celebrates National Family Caregivers Month. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs recognizes National Family Caregivers Month this November, honoring the 5.5 million family members, friends, and neighbors who care for veterans suffering from chronic conditions, disabilities, disease, or daily difficulties. This year's theme is hashtag BeCareCurious. So I guess you can check that hashtag out and see what's on there. Encourages family caregivers from across the country to ask questions, explore options, and share in the care decisions that affect the health and well-being of their loved ones. VA leads the country in providing benefits and services to caregivers and supportive veterans. Caregivers play a critical role in the U.S. healthcare system and enable veterans to maintain their highest level of independence while remaining in their homes and communities for as long as possible. Recognizing the responsibilities of a caregiver can take a toll on one's physical, psychological, and financial health. VA remains committed in creating awareness and providing resources and information. For more details on Family Caregivers Month or for those resources and information, you can call the Caregiver Support Line at 1-855-260-3274 from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Or you can contact your local VA Caregiver Support Coordinator at caregiver.va.gov forward slash support forward slash new underscore csc underscore page dot asp va caregiver support resources are also at caregiver.va.gov and the va's new implementation of the mission act at missionact.va.gov on the very top talks about expanding benefits for caregivers all right on to this week's interview so, you know how there's some bad military movies out there? You know the ones. The uniform's all jacked up. The tactics are wrong. Hey, that tank was made in the 1950s, and this is supposed to be a World War II movie. And especially when you lean back and you say, I don't care what they say, that is not Camp Lejeune. And then there are the really good ones, especially the ones that started coming out in the 80s, all the way up to the, to the 2000s. Cinema royalty, like Platoon, Saving Private Ryan, 
Band of Brothers and the Pacific. For me, these and military video games reshaped my view of military service and the men who served. See, other than my brother, there wasn't much of a military service background in my family. But those movies and games like the original Medal of Honor series, I'm talking about the ones that were made by DreamWorks, the early Battlefield games, the Brothers in Arms series, games that weren't just only games, but were great storytelling pieces. Those movies and games made me respect those that raised that right hand and to an extent led me to raise my own. There was one man who had a hand in all of these. Marine and Vietnam veteran, Captain Dale Dye. And I'm proud to say that he is our interview this week. On the birthday, on the Marine Corps birthday episode of Born the Battle. And of course, he's going to talk about his transition and his Hollywood career. But there's a lot more to him than that. Enjoy. And happy birthday, Double Dogs. Julian Adams, the producer of the upcoming film, uh, The Last Full Measure, sure. uh, which I can't yeah. wait for it to see hit theaters. He came to D.C. for a private screening of that film at the Military Influencer Conference. Now, I don't live in the city. I live near Quantico. Yeah. So I didn't get a room at the hotel, and I took the metro into the conference. And I decided to stay for the screening, but the metro was closed at the end of it. So, so yeah, yeah. So Julian and I, and I parked in Crystal City. So Julian, another uh, veteran technical advisor, um, Air Force veteran, John Pagini, uh, gave me a ride to my truck in Crystal City uh, in John's truck. And during that ride, I mentioned that, you know, as a former Marine, former combat videographer, uh, you were someone I admired and hoped to get on the show. And he was like, well, I got his info right here. And I had about two seconds to take your info down. I mean, he's <laughs> but, but I pulled my phone out and made it happen. So, yeah, I'm, I'm always happy when, you know, I want to be accessible. Uh, look, I, I've had a, an extraordinary career, both in and out of uniform. And a lot of that has been due to fact that that people recognize me, that that people uh, will listen to me and, and people want to see me. So I'm, I'm not one of these guys who locks himself in a corner and says, uh, you know, leave me alone. I must uh, get into my world. I, that's not me. I, I want to be out there and meeting Marines and soldiers and sailors and airmen and and uh, and, and representing them on, on screen, kind of like I did with uh, uh, it last full measure, although I play a politician. Yeah. Um, you're, you're, you, have you noticed uh, roles are changing? And, you know, I almost feel like you're, you're I see a rank progression through your films. You know? Yeah, you can. You can. <laughs> absolutely. Then the general. And now you're the distinguished politician with an extensive military career. Yeah. And that that has more to do uh, with getting old than, <laughs> than it does anything else. Tanner. I mean, uh, you know, at some point sure. you're that you're that old white haired guy. And uh, hey, uh, you know, he's too old to be that chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And and, and they're probably right. So uh, as long as long as I can keep my finger in that that representation uh, i'm happy with whatever role i do and i'm happy that they still that hollywood still does that because uh yeah you're 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 great in the roles that you do i gotta say uh i've been a fan of your work even before i joined the marine corps um i knew i wanted to go into film and video production and i love films as a kid especially military films 
And I would be the kid that would go through all the behind the scenes extra features on a DVD. <laughs> and, e- and every military movie behind the scenes, there was Dale Die. Yeah, it kind of kind of seems that way, doesn't it? I mean, uh, I've, I've I've looked over the the resume, and uh, and it it never ceases to surprise me how many uh, how many films and TV uh, um, programs that I've I've had a little uh, taste of, a little a little effect on maybe. But um, you know, I you're the kind of guy I do it for, so I'm happy with that. And and video games. I mean, I was a I was a big gamer as a kid. Uh, you know, the original Medal of Honor series, sure. Brothers in Arms. Uh, a lot of great storytelling in, in that medium. That kind of goes to my agenda. I'm I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Tanner. Um, you know, when when I first started this, um, I had a, a kind of a simple agenda, um, and that was to uh, use the popular media to uh, and in the. In, at that point, I was thinking movies and television. Yeah, uh, use the popular media to shine to shine some long overdue and and much deserved uh, light on the men and women who wear our uniform and and the service and sacrifice that they provide. Yeah. I didn't think I didn't think Hollywood writ large uh, was doing that properly. And you know, when you're ignorant, you can do a lot of things people tell you you can't do. Sure, uh, sure. And, and, and so I, I went out uh, with that in mind. And what I found was that um, not only could I do it um, in movies and television programs, but I, I could expand the universe. Yeah. And one of the first things that jumped up was video games. And uh, it was uh, Steven Spielberg kind of got me involved in the in the Medal of Honor thing after we did uh, uh, Saving Private Ryan, and uh, and I found that you know I can I could reach a whole new generation of young guys and gals like you, yeah, um, it, through through video games. So so it worked out, and I, and to this day I'll still take any chance I can. Uh, to service that agenda. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Call of Duty series, uh, Brothers in Arms especially was was great storytelling back in the day. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, uh, like may he rest in peace, Arlie Ermey, uh, your voice in military entertainment that is unmistakable. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, Lee, Lee and I, and God bless him, I, I sure miss him. But uh, we, we used to be the two go-to guys in Hollywood who were the real deal, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and and our voices were so distinct, you know, uh, from from other projects that we'd done that that uh, you know producers would say, uh, "Get me Die or Army, one of the two. Uh, hurry up, I don't care." And <laughs> and we'd call each other and say, "Okay, you want to take this one or you want me to?" And and we'd kind of trade off. Now that with OIF and OEF are, are winding down, they're still going, but as they're winding down. Are you seeing more competition in that in that arena as the technical advisor for films and entertainment? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And and look, I welcome competition. Uh, you know, I'm getting a little long in the tooth these days, um, although I have a, a great staff of young veterans uh, who, who work with me and can support films on their own. Look, I, I see a lot of guys and gals and, and I get I get emails and calls and uh, constantly from, you know, hey, I'm, I'm just getting out of the service. I want to do what you do. Um, and I can only imagine. And the unfortunate thing is they, they don't really realize uh, what's involved. Uh, look, four, four years or five years in, in the Army and, and eight or nine deployments uh, to the sandbox, while that's really, really an admirable uh, period of a guy's or a gal's life, 
um, it doesn't by any stretch of the imagination qualify them to walk out and be the go-to military advisor. Look, you have to know all of the services, uh, not just the, what, what happens if, if somebody offers you a Navy film. What are you going to do about that if you're the Army guy? Yeah. Um, what happens if it's a historical piece that you have no idea about? What do you do? So there's, there's a whole lot of folks out there trying to do this, but they tend to be short-term, um, very specific. Yeah. Um, they, they can't cover the, 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 the complete um, breadth, scale and scope of, of military films. So that's a long answer, but there you are. No, absolutely. No, absolutely. That, that totally makes sense. And that's a good advice for somebody that is, is looking to do that in the future. It's a hard gig. I can only imagine. Um, so, you know, basically, like I said, you and my recruiter were the only two, were the, like the two very first gentlemen that taught me about combat camera and, you yeah. know, to, and public affairs to a lesser extent. Did you know that those two Ockfields have merged finally? Yeah, I knew about the Ockfield merge. Uh, I don't know yet uh, how it's all worked out. And I have some problems uh, with it. Um, sure. But but who cares? I mean, it, the, the Marine Corps is going to do what the Marine Corps is going to do. We're, we're, we're out and they're just going to move on. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, was that ever a conversation while you were still in about merging those two Ockfields? Yeah, uh, it's it's not a new concept. It's not a new conversation at all. <laughs> no, um, but really the, the resistance uh, came from the uh, the 46 guys, the, the combat camera guys. Yeah. Um, and they they just thought, you know, they were they were going to be turned into uh, field reporters um, or, or documentary historians, which is not at all what they had in mind. They want to just create beautiful pictures. Yep. Um, uh, document history but, and, and, you know, battle damage assessments and. Yeah, and sure. Basically, and basically and be, be there for the commander on the, in the on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. They 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 looked inward, not outward. And uh, and and I found that to be a problem. And, and in fact, in several of the assignments I had, uh, I just co-opted those guys. <laughs> and uh, of course. And I said, look, uh, let me let me show you how cool this is. And and we would some of them were really, really great shooters, had great eyes. And uh, and and we would get great photos to go along with a little story, and suddenly it would appear in some newspaper or appear on television. Now you have a full product. And I would I would always put my arm around their shoulder and say, "Look, you did that. You did that." And so if 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 the guys in the in the in the uh, uh, public affairs oc field were willing to make that move uh, towards them, it always seemed to work out fine to me. Sure. Uh, what, what worries me right now is that is it we're, we're turning our, our look inward again mm. uh, and we're not we're not using our skill and our talent and the wonderful talent that we have yeah. in those two fields to talk to the public. We're, we're back talking to ourselves again or talking to an adversary um, or an echo. So chamber. I'm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a it's right. It t- <laughs> tends to be a circular firing squad. I object uh, to any uh, noodling around or screwing around with the term combat correspondent, because I think that's that's one of the things that really attracts young men and women to the field. Yeah, um, that just that word combat. You know, you're not a pogue. Yep. Uh, you're you're a combat guy or, or gal or combat videographer uh, or you know combat yeah, yeah. photographer. So, uh, I think as yeah. long as they keep those core competencies and those core missions uh, with what they currently have and don't try to meld them, I think they should be fine. Yeah. What is one role that you, um, 
you know, that was a non-military part. Oh, you know, it's it's kind of weird. Um, we we laugh about how typecast I am. You know, I'm I'm the I'm the military guy who speaks the language yeah. uh, and is and is credible and convincing. So I come in and act one, and I tell the tell the stars what the uh, what the jeopardy is and what the mission is, and then I disappear until act three when I come in and say, "Nice job, boys. Have a beer and here's a medal." Um, so that's kind of been. I, I like that you embrace it too. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, who wouldn't? Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm happy with that. Um, but but you know we we always sit around and talk and say you know you could you I love doing comedy for instance. Uh, I, I'd really like really? to do a role. Yeah, I mean I I've got a great sense of humor. I think at least most of the things that happen in life are funny to me. Well, you're a marine. Uh, uh, we do have that special type of yeah, humor. So, so I've got that dark <laughs> sense of humor. Right? <laughs> Um, but you know, we're, we've, we've talked off and on, you know, what would be the biggest stretch for you, Dale? You know, and, and I say, well, you know, I could, I could be the gay hairdresser. Uh, I could be the, uh, you know, the, the weird, uh, hippie guy that disappeared up into the mountains and, <laughs> and you know, teaches wisdom. And so I, I think it's, it's become kind of a, uh, it's become kind of a running joke with my executive officer who, by the way, um, was another 43, another PA guy. He and I were, were young sergeants together in Vietnam. Wow. So he's been, he's been with me, uh, almost 50 years. Oh my God. And, uh, yeah, he's a, he's a great guy and he's my executive officer, my XO. If that's not, and, Fidelis, and I don't know what is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's Semper Fidelis. You're exactly right. Um, but he calls every once in a while, you know, when, especially when we're on a film working together and, and he'll say, Hey, how about if you do the, you know, and it'll be some weird thing. I'll be the, the drunk cowboy in the, in the, in the saloon, you know, who gets shot or something. But, uh, those, those roles <laughs> so far have eluded me. Gotcha. Well, you have played a couple, I think what night and day you were the dad. Yeah. Tom Cruise's dad. Yeah. yeah that was, that's fun. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you, you know, you mentioned Vietnam. Um, now, were you drafted or did you enlist? Oh, no. Uh, I enlisted. Um, I mean, I, I had I had heard the, the call of, of the military um, long before I ever uh, actually enlisted. I mean, um, I can remember sitting next to my dad in, you know, various bars in southeast Missouri. Mm. And uh, and I would listen to these old guys tell war stories. And I was absolutely fascinated with it. You know, they were telling World War II stories. And I was absolutely fascinated with it. Um, and so I pushed to go away to military school um, as soon as I could. And I did that. I mean, my high school years were at Missouri Military Academy. Oh, wow. Um, and when I got out of Missouri Military Academy, where I, I thrived, actually, um, I wanted to go to the Naval Academy. Um, of course, with with yeah, you know, hopes of either being a, a Navy officer or, or a Marine officer, and and I was unfortunately too damn dumb to pass the entrance exams, mm. um, and so I tried I tried a couple of times and screwed it up, and so I was kind of at a loss of what to do. I mean, there there wasn't there weren't a lot of scholarships in those days, and I couldn't qualify for one anyway. Yeah. Um, and so I was, I was at a loss of what to do. And, and, uh, one snowy, stormy night, um, in 19, I guess, 63, um, you know, I was walking past a post office and I saw this, this poster, 
um, that said it had this rock jawed Marine and dress blues. And he was pointing at me and saying, ready, U S Marines. And I said, you know, by God, I think I am ready. And I went and I enlisted. <laughs> Just that quick. Uh, That's awesome. That it. Yeah. Boom, bing, bang, boom. And the next thing I know, uh, in January of 64, I was in boot camp. So, Wow. Uh, Paris Island or, or San Diego? Uh, San Diego. All right. I was west of the west of the Mississippi, so I was shipped off to the Hollywood uh, Marine contingent. As was I. I was, I'm the son of a logger from Washington State. Mm. Public affairs, is that something you chose or is that something that was chose that was put upon you? Well, uh, and when, I, when I first joined the Marine Corps, um, I was an infantryman. Yeah. Um, and I went through infantry training regiment and uh, and joined the 5th Marines uh, at Camp Pendleton, which was at uh, Marguerite, Camp Margarita at the time. Yeah. And and they made me a mortarman. So I was an 0341 um, for a couple of years. But I was really, really getting bored with it. I mean, I have an active mind and an active imagination. And at that point, we weren't doing a whole lot. I mean, there wasn't. Uh, it was like 64, 65. So there wasn't a whole lot of chance of me, you know, going. I didn't even know where Vietnam was. Yeah, actually. just just some rumblings probably at the time. Yeah, it was just rumblings below the surface. And um, and and my life seemed to be climbing up big, long hills, carrying a mortar base plate or the tube or something and and seeing nothing of the world of the Marine Corps other than, you know, the, the pack of the guy who's walking up the hill in front of me. So I was getting a little bored and a little antsy. Uh, and that's not good for me. Mm. Uh, yeah. I tend to get in trouble when I, when I do that. And, <laughs> and one day we're in the field training and this guy comes by, he's a corporal or a sergeant. I can't remember. And, and he's, uh, you know, he's got utility uniform on and, but he's carrying a camera around his neck and he's got a little notepad and he's talking to people. Yeah. And I said, you know, just as a matter of curiosity, I said, I walked up to him. I said, Hey, who the hell are you? And he said, um, I'm corporal. So-and-so his name was bland, uh, by the way, Corporal bland, <laughs> yeah, corporal bland. And, uh, and he said, I'm, I'm from base ISO. Now that's what the, the, the predecessor to what we know as PAO or public affairs. In those days, it was called informational services. Ah. And I said, yeah, so, so what do you do? And he said, well, I'm, a, I'm like a reporter. I'm like a photojournalist. And I said, really? Because I had been the, the editor of my high school newspaper. <laughs> they, I had a little interest in that. The, the Marine Corps has so, that? <laughs> yeah. And he said, listen, let me tell you. I think I was a corporal at the time or Lance Corporal. And he said, this is the greatest dodge in the Marine Corps. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, there's only a few of us. And if you're any good at it, if you can write a little story uh, that's interesting and take a little picture to go with it, he said, man, you can do anything in the world. The Marine Corps will let you do anything yep. just as long as you can produce something out of it. And I said, Really? He said, oh, yeah, man, it's it's the greatest deal in the world. And I said, well, how, how would a guy get into that? And he said, well, uh, they were always looking for people who are qualified. He said, give me your name. And I gave him my name and service number and all that stuff and who I was attached to. Hmm. And he said, I'll, I'll take this to the to the gunny. I forget the gunny. Or in those days, all we had were warrant officers and LDOs. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, um, and a week or 10 days later, I get this, you know, the company gunny comes storming up to me and he says, die, listen up. 
I don't know who you've been talking to, but uh, you're going to headquarters and you got to talk to this. So anyway, I, I ended up uh, uh, the, the un- going the to the beginning that knows he's losing a Marine. Oh, yeah. yeah. He knows he's about to lose one. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, and so I went and, and, and did this interview with a staff NCO and then an interview with an officer. But I was an infantry NCO and and Fifth Marines was not interested in losing me yeah. to some weenie MOS like, you know, public affairs. So um, <laughs> what happened was essentially this this LDO officer who was the the ISO at the time, um, what we would call the PAO actually got an appointment with the commanding general of the division. Wow. And I had to go along. Now, I had never even seen a general, much less had to stand at attention in front of one. So he marches me into the office and he introduces me and he says, General, this this young Marine has just got all the talent and skill and stuff that we need. And of course, I had lost. I was just staring at the bulkhead over the general's uh, head. And, and, you know, this went on for five or 10 minutes and then they ushered me out and I didn't know what the hell was going to happen. And, and about two weeks later, I went back to my outfit yeah. and about two weeks later, uh, I got orders and I was to report to the, uh, the ISO shop uh, for reassignment and for change of MOS. So uh, that's a very long story and boring, but anyway, that's how I, that's how I got in. No, that's uh you know, it's, it's amazing. The differences in how what we call lat moving, you know, was back then to, to what it is now. It, it, it sounds like a more involved, you know, interview driven process. And now it's like, Hey, you want to reenlist This is the, what you can do. You know, we tended to be a little loosey goosey in those days. Sure. Sure. Uh, which, which was cool. I mean, it was one of the things I love most about the Marine Corps is we could be loosey goosey about things and not get overly concerned with bureaucracy. Absolutely. But, uh, so what happened was I began to train and I got the MOS, the military occupational specialty. And, uh, and I said, well, this is cool because I was, I was out doing all kinds of stuff. Yeah. I was riding in helicopters. I was, I was going to artillery batteries and learning how they shoot the 105s and the 5.5s. And I was having a ball because I was actually seeing all there was of the Marine Corps. Yeah. And then, of course, the, the dreaded orders dropped. And uh, and I found out why they call it combat correspondent is I got I got orders to the first Marine Division in Vietnam. Yeah. As a combat correspondent, uh, you embedded in some pretty intense fights during Vietnam mm-hmm. um, each year from, you know, from what I've read each year from 67 to 70. At some yeah. point, those years, you touch Vietnam at some point. Um, yeah, I did. Overall, yeah. 30, three tours, 31 combat oper- operations, three Purple Hearts, Bronze yeah. Star with the Combat V. Um, one of those purple hearts was in way during the 10 offensive, correct? It was. Yeah. That's, that's the one that still, still haunts me. Uh, way was, way was, an, uh, it was a surreal fight. Um, nobody was prepared for that. I mean, hell we had all been uh, trained, uh, for, you know, jungle warfare, counter guerrilla warfare. And, and we rolled into that city, uh, and got, Terribly surprised. Uh, we were we were in a, a brutal, brutal house to house fight uh, on two sides of the river on the, you know, uh, on the south side, a more modern city and on the uh, north side of the Perfume River, the, the, the Citadel, which was formidable, yeah. uh, a kilometer long castle, essentially. Um, and, and in a way, uh, the difference is in in 
in normal combat, if there is such a thing as normal combat, um, you tend to, to shoot at shadows, fleeting shadows or, or muzzle flash. Yeah, uh, it's kind of rare when you're when you can see the other guy and he can see you and you're looking into each other's BDS eyeballs. Um, but in a way, it was that way every day, every fight, every hour. I mean, um, and we had to learn how to do it on the fly. Nobody. I think we had one or two old master sergeants that had fought in Seoul in Korea. In Korea. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they were the only ones who had any idea of how the hell you do uh, mount what's called mount now uh, uh, military operations in urban terrain. Yeah. And by the way, I, I have a great uh, after way I developed a, a great new acronym uh, for mount. Oh, yeah. What's that? I call it. I call it fish. OK. F-I-S-H. Fighting in someone's house. Uh, yeah, but the Marine Corps, Marine Corps didn't like it much. So, yeah. <laughs> I said, keep that one to yourself, Doc. Um, Wade was, was, was a meat grinder. Uh, it really was. It was brutal. And, uh, and, and because it was so brutal and so intense, um, and, and, and because it brought every aspect of war home to me, um, it's, it's the one operation over 30-some uh, that I, I just can't forget that still haunts me at night every once in a while. Is it true Sergeant Dale Dye had a yellow flower sticking out of his helmet cover? cover in a way? Yeah, I, unfortunately it is true. <laughs> uh, and you want me to tell the story about how that happened? Sure, yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, uh, when, we were, when we were going into Hawaii, I, I was partnered with another 43, a uh, guy by the name of Steve Burnson, uh, who was later hit very badly and crippled uh, when we were in the north side fight. Uh, But on the south side fight, we had chased a couple of enemy soldiers, uh, NVA, North Vietnamese Army, uh, into a uh, little Buddhist temple thing. And uh, we fired up and and they were running and hiding and so on and so forth. And we fired up and I I emptied a magazine at a uh, at a Buddhist uh, at a Buddha statue because I thought there was an enemy behind it. Sure. It turns out there was an enemy behind it and I killed him. Wow. Um, and so my, uh, my buddy, uh, goes over and, and in front of this Buddha, which is now shattered by all my rifle fire, uh, he sees this vase of flowers and there's, they're plastic flowers. And, and so he pulls this big, long, yellow, gaudy flower out and he says, Hey man, you, you really, you really nailed that guy. And, and it was really cool. And, and you're, so here's your reward. And he takes this yellow uh, flower and he sticks it in my helmet. Yeah. And, and so now I'm walking around in way with this big yellow flower uh, in my, on my helmet and, and I didn't pay any attention to it until a couple of days later when uh, we're trying to cross the street and we're getting hammered by machine guns, which have got us in a crossfire. And, uh, and so I'm hiding behind this low stone wall and I'm trying to move down the line of guys and I'm, I'm doing the Groucho duck walk. Yeah. And the machine gun fire keeps following me. 
And I can't, I, you know, it can't be that the guy can see me. I don't, I don't know what the hell is going on here. And everybody's laughing, you know, typical Marines. <laughs> we just laugh at horror. About guys getting and, shot at, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, and he's following that damn yellow flower is sticking up from behind the wall. Oh, and, my and God. And he's shooting at it as I'm duck walking down. Anyway, he finally shot it off of my helmet. And that was the end of that. But that's the story on the yellow flower. Saw a little bit of that on your on your blog there. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, you wrote a very deep detailed account of that battle in your blog on dalediet.com. Yeah. Um, was that, why did you write it? Was, you know, you talked about being, it still haunts you to this day. Is that, was that cathartic to get that out? Yes, and write? it was. It, it was Tanner. And, and, and all of my books, uh, in some way, I think I've published 12 or 13 novels now. Yeah. Um, but, um, the, the one that, the blog and the one, uh, called run between the raindrops, which was my first published novel, uh, was really cathartic. It was really me trying to uh, get some of the poison out of my system. I mean, um, that I think one of the big problems uh, with with guys and gals that came home from Vietnam, primarily guys, yeah. um, was that uh, because uh, the country was so divided over the war, um, that that we didn't really get a lot of opportunity to to vent. You know, to get that poison, uh, those those horrible images, to to talk about them and get them out of our system. Nobody wanted to hear about that, mm. um, and and so I think what happened was a lot of that poison uh, stayed in their guts and drove them to substance abuse and and drove them to uh, becoming hermits and and just becoming angry and bitter uh, young men. Yeah, uh, I, I recognized that after a while. And I said, look, I, I can't be one of those. Uh, I'm not going to be the professional disgruntled Rambo veteran. I, I, that's just not me. And so because I have a writing talent uh, and a, a kind of a performing talent, uh, it occurred to me that, that one of the ways I could, I could clear my guts or clear my mind or clear those images was simply to talk about them, um, was, was simply to write about them, you know, to, to say, look, uh, you may not want to hear this, and frankly, I don't give a damn. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to tell you about the things that are haunting me. I'm going to tell you about the images. I'm going to tell you what that war was, that battle, that war was really like. Yeah. Um, and it turned out to be great. Uh, you're exactly right. It was cathartic. It was therapeutic, and I'm really glad I did it. And it continues to be. Yeah. Now, I took you. Uh, you know, I mean, I think you wrote your first book in the '80s. It was. It wasn't like immediately after the war that you did this. It, was there a, a time where it, it was, you know, haunting you almost every day? Yeah, there really was, Tanner. And and I got to tell you, uh, it was a period of about 10 years. Yeah. Um, and had I not had Mother Core not wrapped her loving arms around me and, and forgiven me my sins, um, I don't know where I'd be. I'd probably be in prison or dead. Uh, there's there's a there's a hell of a difference between the war and the warrior. Yeah. Um, and and as they as the Marine Corps protected me and promoted me and 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 uh, and and sort of nurtured me, um, I began to heal. Uh, I began to to think, you know, uh, that war may have been really horrible um, and it may have may have really scarred some people. Uh, but the Marine Corps didn't do that. The war did that. Um, on, on your blog on dalday.com, you wrote, 
that fascinates me and makes me wonder why I occasionally pick at emotional scabs this long after my wartime service. It's a hard row for me to hoe. I was emotionally shattered after multiple combat tours. When the war that defined me as a person and as a Marine ended in such a humiliating and ignoble fashion. For nearly a decade, I stumbled through my life in a sort of a daze, trying to justify the sacrifices I made in observing Southeast Asia. It's fair to say that had I not stayed in uniform, surrounded by kindred and tolerant spirits, I might, ha- I might not have survived the peace that followed the war. Now, my takeaway from that was that the effects of PTSD were in Dale Dye's life, and they were softened by the Marine Corps camaraderie. Is that true? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Tanner, and, and you, have, you have taken from what I wrote the exact bottom line message. Uh, the Marine Corps saved me. There's no question in my mind. There will never be a question in my mind. And it was those fellow Marines, those people who, who had seen the owl and or heard the owl and seen the elephant with me. Um, yeah. So when I would begin to run off the rails, when I would begin to run off the, the track, <clears throat> those guys would say, look, uh, I get it. I was there. I saw it, too. Uh, just talk to me. Don't don't do something stupid. Just talk to me. And to this day, I think that's the mission that I try to get other veterans to do. Um, look, PTSD is handleable. It's not a new thing. Um, and in fact, it's a, it can be a character builder. It can make you different than the average schlub out there on the street, you know, who, who doesn't understand, uh, who doesn't have his priorities in order, doesn't understand life or death. Yeah. Um, but we've got to take care of each other. Uh, we really do. 100%. And and look, it, it doesn't make any difference whether I know you from Adams off Ox. I'll spot you as a combat veteran and you'll spot me as a combat veteran. And it just takes talking to us. We can say things uh, or shorthand communication that nobody else can because we get it. Uh, and, and we get that feeling, that that loneliness, that that isolation that nobody understands. We get those flashbacks. We understand uh, the images that are haunting you. Um, And we've got to take care of each other in that way. And nobody else can do it. Look, you know, we we see this constantly. Tanner, I mean, you see um, horseback riding for vets, guitars for vets, uh, outdoor hiking for vets, hunting and fishing for vets, vets on campus, vets on this, vets on that. Thousands and thousands, like something like 56,000 yeah. uh, support groups now, nonprofits. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's all fine. But the bottom line is a guy who's a guy or a gal who's in distress needs an empathetic, sympathetic ear. That's all it takes, really. Some camaraderie. Some people that know. Yeah, you've, you've, you've just got to, you've got to trust that I know what you're talking about, that mm-hmm. I've seen that same elephant. Um, and, and you've got to, I have to trust that you know that. Mm. And once, once we've established that, that, that camaraderie, once we've established that bottom line, once we've established that empathy, then we can talk to each other. And some of that crap that's inside us can come out and be gone you know, banished. Uh, and, and that's a great place to get, Absolutely, but we have to help each other get there. Absolutely. Now, I think you've already, I think you just answered this, but I'm still going to ask the question. Okay. Um, <laughs> what is one thing that you could tell someone who is coming home today 
that is having to survive that piece that you wrote about? I'd say, look, I know it hurts. I know that it's going to bother you. I know it's a burr under your saddle. I know it's a tick in your ear. Um, but you're not the first guy or gal to feel that way. You're not unique. I know that it's hard to find somebody to talk to. I know that it's hard to find somebody who, who's just interested in listening, much less understanding. So don't bother with that. Find yourself a buddy. You found a battle buddy in combat. Hell, you might not have known the guy. He's, he's from, you know, East Jesus, Tennessee, and, and you're from the West Coast. <laughs> but together, shoulder to shoulder, in that hole or on that patrol, or kicking down that door, stacking up outside of it, he was your buddy. And he's your buddy now. You just got to find somebody. And it doesn't matter who it is, as long as he understands, as long as he's been there, as long as he's worn the cloth, just like you have, mm. then you got a buddy mm. and that buddy's going to help you. So find that buddy. And I think that's where some, some VSOs come in, you know, that's where you go to yeah. find your buddies. You find, you find people yeah. that were like you to join that community again. Yeah, and Absolutely. Tanner. And, and don't come crying the poor ass. Just come in and say, look, I'd like to talk to somebody, but I need somebody who, who gets it. Yeah, absolutely. And find that, that body, you know, and if he's not, if he's not working or she's not working, find somebody else, but don't quit because you can't keep that crap all bottled up inside you. If you do, it'll eat your guts and it'll kill you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Dale, you spent a lot of time with grunts, with all those, all the operations, um, yeah. the infantrymen. What is one thing that is always misrepresented about them in culture that you would want to get set, that you want to help set straight? Well, I, I just think people misperceive the infantry in general. Uh, there is a tendency to think of them, and, and I guess Vietnam in, in many ways is to blame for this, um, but there is a tendency to think of them as ignorant. There's a tendency to think of them as uh, not qualified to do anything else, uh, you know, nose-picking knuckle-draggers, uh, which is the farthest thing in the world mm. from the truth, Absolutely. particularly today. Uh, young men and women who, who carry an infantry, military, occupational specialty got to be sharp. They got to be good. And, and so I, I like the idea of, of blowing away that, that canard about infantrymen. And I like the idea of, of celebrating their great flexibility, durability, and sense of, of black humor. Uh, to me, that's, that's one of the things that always just made me laugh. Absolutely. I said, my God, look, look at what we're going through. And these guys are, you know, uh, are just harassing each other. And, and, uh, and it's what a great spirit that is. What, what a great example of the human spirit emerging, um, under duress and enduring, uh, and so, enduring through stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and I want to celebrate that. Outstanding. Uh, 100%. Um, now you eventually become you became a warrant officer, then a captain. Uh, you were a lot of ranks in service. You put and you and, yeah. and you almost, all, almost of all of them, and you've <laughs> played a lot of ranks. What was your favorite rank in the Marine Corps, and how does it compare to your favorite rank in a, in a film? Well, look, I, I think I was a long time as a three stripe sergeant. Mm. 
And I just, I just found that to be cool. Uh, it, yeah, it was cool to be a gunny and it was cool to be a staff sergeant, but being that sergeant, that three stripe sergeant, um, that, that, you know, had charge of 12, 13, 14 men. Direct charge. Um, you can touch them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I was, I was, I could still reach out and get a hold of them. Um, I loved that. Um, and I love being a warrant officer. Um, because, uh, you know, once, once you're a warrant, once you're a Marine gunner, uh, you're, you're expected to know it all and you can get away with a lot of salty crap, all of which, which <laughs> frankly I did. Um, so I love those two ranks. Um, now I, I, I haven't been able, I've played a few enlisted men, uh, in, I think on JAG, uh, I played a Sergeant major. Mm. Um, but by the time I got into acting, um, I, I was a little old to be corporal this or Sergeant that. Yeah. Uh, so I was either a very, very senior staff NCO or I was an officer. Um, and, and I think, uh, in some of the officer roles, um, I, I had a good time. I played, uh, there was a, there was a tele, a short lived, uh, television program, uh, starring, uh, Gina Davis, uh, called commander in chief. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, and I played the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and I thought I brought a certain humor uh, to that. I mean, we, we tend to think of general officers at, at that level as being, you know, humorless bureaucrats. Hey, they got jokes, too. Uh, they got jokes, too. Yeah, sure. And, and, and look where they came from. So I, I kind of brought, brought that humor or that taste of humor, I hope, uh, to that role. And, and I've tried to do that. Uh, as much as I can. I mean, the, the honest answer to your question, Tanner, is, is look, every time I do a role, uh, and I, I love to do a role where I'm, I'm portraying a, a, a real person, uh, I like to do a lot of research. For instance, uh, if you look at Colonel Sink in Band of Brothers, yeah. uh, which is one of my favorite roles, he's Mine a real too. guy. Yep. Um, and, 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 and I was able to really research him um, and to, and to bring some of his, for instance, uh, his family, he was dead, um, but his family was still alive. And they were kind enough to uh, send me some tape recordings of speeches that he made. Oh, wow. And, and so I would walk around with headphones on and listen to this guy speak. And so that's how you get this North Carolina drawl huh. um, that, um, that Colonel Stink uh, distinctly had. And so I would talk in that. Fa and so I would I would learn. I'm a little mimic anyway. And uh, and so I would I would study that role and kind of bring it, bring it to the screen. Uh, I did that with uh, uh, Colonel Leonard Wood in Rough Riders, uh, for instance, who was a real guy. That's the uh, the TNT. TNT film. Yeah. With, with Tom Berenger playing uh, playing Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah. yeah. Right. I, I interviewed somebody else from that that series. Um Robert Primo, otherwise known as Indian Bob in the film. Mm -hmm. Did you ever ha have any interaction with him? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Indian Bob was was right there with me uh, on on when we were training. I, I trained for three weeks uh, in in uh, turn of the century cavalry tactics um, with that entire uh, unit. And Indian Bob was a big part of it. And I saw him after after we finished filming. Also, he lives uh, or used to live uh, up east of LA yeah, uh, on a ranch and, and we would see him every once in a while. Gotcha. Yeah. He's out, um, uh, out towards Colorado now. Uh, is he? he is. He's, yeah. he's had to be, yeah, what, a, what a great horseman. 
the guy, the guy really knows uh, horses, uh, and he's a great rider. Um, but, but you know, it was it was that kind of thing. Uh, I mean, he he quickly got the cavalry tactics, and whenever we wanted to, you know, shift over into the Indian scout mode, uh, Indian Bob was always right there. Well, Robert will be the November 20th episode of Born the Battle. Oh, it, terrific. It is, well, uh, please give him my, my love and best regards. I will. Uh, you know, it being Native American uh, Heritage Month, I figured it was only appropriate, mm-hmm. you know. So uh, his story needs to be told as well, I think. Now, who was either a great friend or a great mentor while you're in the service? Hey, look, I, I think I think I had a bunch of them. Um, there was the... Um, uh, there was my my company gunnery sergeant uh, when I was a mortarman in Fifth Marines, uh, Jack Butts, mm. uh, probably probably one of the one of the greatest leaders I'd ever seen, and and he he kind of recognized in me that that I was going to be worth a damn, and he he'd spend some time with me talking to me, the kind of that tough love gunny thing, and uh, and boy I, I I hung on every word that came out of his mouth. He was a survivor of the. Uh, of the frozen chosen, uh, oh, wow. in, uh, in Korea. And, uh, and, and man, I, I knew that guy was on top of it and I listened to it. Uh, that was one. And then, uh, later on in my career, um, I ran into a, a an absolutely wonderful, uh, limited duty officer, public affairs officer by the name of, uh, Mock Arnold, uh, Mordecai R. Arnold. Mm. Uh, and, and Mock was, was absolutely brilliant. Um, he was, um, he was a leader and, and he knew how to protect his talent. And he did that. He taught me that, you know, you got to love them to lead them. And, and, and he did that. Uh, and, and I modeled my, my, my performance as an officer after Mock Arnold. He was an extraordinary man. He's dead now. God rest him. Uh, yeah. But he and, and you know, all the guys who work with me uh, all knew him. Um, and and he was the mentor. He was one of those guys who, you know, had been in the Marine Corps since World War II. Yeah. Uh, oh, wow. So he, he pretty well knew everything. And and he would share it. And he knew how to lead. And, and he taught me that wonderful, wonderful lesson. Um you know, enlisted Marines have a very highly tuned BS filter. Yeah. And you, you can't snow them and you shouldn't try. And he said, if they understand that you love them, you can lead them and they will follow you anywhere. And, and I, that's just the magic. What's one of, of what's, what's one example of that where he did that? Well, uh, I can I can remember a time uh, when we had uh, we his Marines um, had gotten in some trouble and we were all I don't I forget what it was. It was booze related somehow or another, something we had done. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think we'd blown up an MP pickup truck or something. That, that, and, and we were clearly guilty and we were clearly out of control. And and he could have gone two ways. He could have said, you people have pushed it way too far. Uh, I'm going to set you up for court martial or set you up for, you know, a ninja punch, uh, Article 15. and Drop the hammer. And, uh, yeah. yeah, he could have dropped it. But, but he said, look, I value you. I know this isn't really who you are. You are important. 
you are contributing greatly to a very, very difficult mission. And he said, I'm not going to overlook this. You're going to be filling some sandbags and burning some crappers, but I don't want this to harm your career. You're too valuable for that. And, and it was just magic. I mean, uh, he, everybody above him said, well, you just court-martial those maggots, you know, just get them out of your area. He wouldn't do that. Mm. And at that point, the example of love them to lead them came right home to me. I think, uh, I think if there's any active duty listener, active duty, uh, listeners on this podcast, that's a, that's a good lesson to always refer back to, you know, sure. um, yeah. back your people, um, you know, and take the heat. And he did, he took heat, uh, for not, you know, frying us on the grill. Um, but I think, I think he was willing to do that. I think that was wonderful of him. Yeah. From there, from there, you're probably do, willing to do anything for him, you know, with that, with that type of leadership. Oh yeah. Yeah. He absolutely, listen, he could have sent us anywhere and, and we'd, we'd have known we were going to get blown away, but we'd have gone. Yeah. Dale, I didn't know that you were in Beirut. I was, yeah. yeah. 82, 83. My, yeah. my very first interview here on the podcast, uh, episode 135, Rick Robinson, uh, he was a combat videographer that filmed the very first landing on Beirut, and mm-hmm. he later became a DP out in LA. Was he was he yeah. one of yours? Is he one of the ones that you co opted? No, no. no uh, we we kind of crossed uh, like ships in the night. Yeah, uh, I knew him. Um, oh, you did, but yeah, that yeah. is one of my men- um, that was one of my mentors in the Marine Corps. Yeah, well, a good one. Yeah, um, but uh, no, I I came in in um, I think September or October of eighty two. Uh, just at the time we were uh, uh, moving Yasser Arafat out mm. and we're having the Israeli incursion problems. And then I stayed until I think May uh, of 83. I double pumped over there um, and uh, and saw some saw some wonderful Marines. And, and the neat thing was that I was looking at a at another generation. Not many of those Marines had seen combat. Uh, only the very senior of us uh, really had seen combat. But there they were. And there they were putting up with an ambiguous mission. Yeah. Um, and and they were pulling it off just like we did in, in Vietnam. So I, it, the big thing I took away from Beirut, um, although although the, the deployment to Beirut ended horribly and tragically in October of, uh, of uh, 83. Yeah. Um, just had the recent but, uh, anniversary but, of that. Yeah. Um, but, but what, what, uh, the positive side of it was that I saw a new generation of young Marines that were going to do just as well in combat, um, as, as we did in Vietnam. And, and they showed me that, uh, later on, uh, when they got involved in, in the Middle East. Very, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, you know, what worries me, what's that? You know, what worries me, um, you know, after after Vietnam, after the pullout of Vietnam uh, in, in 1975, uh, after 10 years at war in Southeast Asia, uh, there was a there was an entire generation of Vietnam veteran that, that felt um, let down, that felt betrayed. You know, we we didn't get in there and we didn't win that thing. Yeah. Uh, and that was a, that, that added to the difficulty of readjustment. And and now. Now we've got you kids, uh, you sorry kids, you young men and women, who who are who've been there 18, 19 years. It's amazing that some of the people from when I first came in are getting ready to retire. That just amazes yeah. me. Yeah, 
But but now uh, we're going to pull out of the Middle East at last. And and I think we're going to have another generation of young men and women, veterans uh, of the of the sandbox uh, in one form or another, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria. And, and they're going to be feeling the same thing. You know, we, what did it all mean? Uh, why did why did we do that? Why did we go through that? And now it's over and inconclusive. And, and so they're going to have the same problems that we had uh, when we came home from Vietnam. And that's why we've got a, us Vietnam guys who, who know about that have got to step up. We've got to say, no, look, don't get the war and politics confused with the warrior. You did great over there and you served your country well. But you got to remember that. I, th- I think that's going to be the big difference. And that would be that's going to be the, the big positive difference. You know, for all it was worth, Dale. Um, when you guys came home, when those guys got out after Vietnam, uh, the public was incredibly distasteful against them, yeah. you know, and, and, yeah. and there's nothing that uh, myself or the VA or service organizations can do to change those memories. They're always gonna, right. they're always going to be there. Um, but for what it was worth, everything that that generation had to go through coming home is the reason that the pendulum swung the other way for us. And is the yeah, reason yeah. that the um, that the public is so receptive to the veteran of today. You are dead right. You're dead right, Tanner. You've hit it you've hit and it right directly I, on the nail head. I can't thank those Vietnam veterans. I mean, it, it was a hard bridge to cross, <laughs> but they are the reason that we're so reset we're we're received the way we are today. And I can't. Yeah, and it's, I think it's about, a knee jerk. And I think, yeah, yeah and I, but I, I, I thank them every day for that. Any, any, any Vietnam well, veteran, I can, because that's, you know, if there's any solace, take please, if you're a Vietnam veteran, take solace in that. Yeah, yeah, I, I think, I think there is solace in that. Um, I think if there's anything that we did, whether it was overtly or covertly, um, it was to force the public not to treat returning veterans uh, badly just because they don't happen to agree with the, the conflict or the war that, that uh, those veterans were involved in. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Dale, you retired in 1984, uh, kind of mm-hmm. during that. Is that correct? 84? That's it. Yeah, summer of 84. Now, your first credit wasn't until 1986. What was your transition like? What did you do for those first two years? How did, and how did you end up starting Warriors, Inc.? Well, look, um, I, I was kind of lost. Uh, I went to work for about a year uh, for a thing called Soldier of Fortune magazine. Um, yeah, I think it's still around too, up, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I I ended up, I, I thought it was going to be, you know, combat correspondent related job. And really, it turned out to be training uh, counter guerrilla warfare guys down in Central America in El Salvador, Nic- uh, Nicaragua, uh, and uh, and areas like that. Interesting. Uh, so it was like a you thought it was going to be a combat correspondent gig. It turned into Blackwater. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> but um, and then um, Iran Contra happened. Um, and and if you don't what remember what Iran Contra was, uh, Google it. Yeah. So I I came home uh, from Central America and uh, and I said, you know, what the hell am I going to do now? Um, and, uh, and I sat down one night and did, you know, what Marines do. I took one of those long yellow legal pads and a <laughs> box of crayons and, uh, and a case of beer. 
And, uh, and I started trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life, you know, and, and, uh, and one of the things that I discovered uh, was that, uh, you know, I'd always been, I was kind of like you, Tanner, I'd, I'd always been a movie fan mm. and I'd seen, I'd seen every military movie there was, I think. Um, and the upshot was the bottom line was that, uh, they they pissed me off <laughs> uh, because they, they simply, you know, didn't reflect who we are, what we're about and that sort of thing. Um, they were just full of cliches and nonsense. So, uh, you know, as I as I said earlier, uh, you can do a lot of things uh, when you're ignorant uh, that people tell you you can't do. And, and that was certainly my case, because what I decided to do was, look, I'm going to go out there to Hollywood. And I'm going to find out who these technical advisors are that I see in the credits and and how and find out how they can be that screwed up uh, or how they can allow that to happen. Um, and, and so I came out uh, to uh, L.A. and I started hanging around with people, you know, I made a big pain in the ass out of myself and started hanging around trying to find people who made movies and to find out how this works. Yeah. Um, and, and I did. I, I found out a lot of things. Um, we, we don't have time for me to tell you all of the things I found out. Sure, sure, but, sure. But, but basically, I found out that uh, what Hollywood did uh, prior to my coming on the scene and, and, and succeeding uh, was that uh, they, they would hire some guy who did six months in the California National Guard you know, and they they pay him five hundred bucks to tell him which side the ribbons go on. Oh my gosh! And then, and then and then tell him to go to sleep until they woke up. And 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 that was that was a, really a matter of hubris. Hollywood felt that anybody who, who wore a uniform, um, especially wore a uniform as a career choice, uh, couldn't conceivably have a creative bone in their body, or they or they wouldn't have done that. Um, and that was the prevailing attitude. Uh, I think it, part of it was post-Vietnam and, and yeah. so on and so forth. Yeah. But I knew it wasn't true. I knew it was absolute nonsense. And I knew from my Marine Corps experience uh, that the way to fix that was to introduce these people, uh, not just by lecture, but by actual experience into what the military is really like, who we are, how we talk, how we relate to each other, how we love each other, how we care for each other. Um, how we treat each other. And so I would, I would try to get that done. And, and as part of trying to get that done, I established a company, um, which was a military advisory service uh, called Warriors Incorporated. And, uh, and I brought in my executive officer and some other people, and, and I tried to get us work. The problem was when I would try to sell our services, uh, people would say, look, we've we've been making military movies for 35 years, uh, 50 years, and we've made zillions and trillions of dollars. And, and now you want to change the method? You want to fix it? It ain't broke. Uh, well, it was broke. Um, yeah, I paid the money, but it pissed me off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but try to tell them that, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. we didn't have a voice and I wanted to be that voice. Um, and, and it was really frustrating. And, and I, I, uh, I got a little job on a, on a remake of a science fiction movie, uh, called invaders from Mars. I was gonna say, Dale, you know, yeah. I remember your lines from Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. Others might remember platoon, especially the generation before me. And that's that was your second movie credit platoon. 
Yeah. But not many, not many people know about this first credit that you're going to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> nor, nor should they. Nor should yeah. they. <laughs> I watched the trailer before I did the interview. Um, and, and I'm seeing, I'm seeing platoon. I'm just going to say that they're not in the same category. Yeah, they are. Um, <laughs> but hell, I had no compunction about killing Martians, you know, so. Yeah. So at any rate, uh, what happened was I was a director by the name of Toby Hooper uh, did that. Uh, he's dead now, too. God bless him. Mm. But he sent me to film school. He was an old Texas boy and, and he had pity on me. And, and he let me look through the camera and, and I learned what every department did. And I, it was a mini film school. And I really loved it. Um, but now I had to put what I now knew to work. I had to find somebody who would trust me uh, as the as the senior military advisor and as a pivotal part of the movie making experience of, of the of the whole process. Yeah. 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 Not just, you know, sit in a chair and tell us uh, whether that's the right weapon or not. No, it goes into uh, writing. It goes into pre-production. It goes into yeah, everything. All of that. You know, yeah. every bit of it. Yeah. So. Um, the uh, the the upshot of this whole thing was that um, I w I saw a little notice in a trade paper. I'd learned at this point to read the trade papers like Hollywood Reporter and Backstage and, and so on and so forth. Um, and so um, I saw this little notice that said a heretofore relatively unknown writer director by the name of Oliver Stone uh, was going to do a war movie. Uh, based on his own experience as a combat infantryman in Vietnam. And I said, whoa, bingo, <laughs> there it is. If I can get to this guy, he'll get it. Nobody else might, but he will. And through through a series of a long series of machinations and maneuvers, uh, I can't really tell you about them because the statute of limitations may not have run out yet. <laughs> but a series of machinations, I, I got to it. Um, and I, I did my best two minute drill and I said, listen, here's what's wrong with most military movies and here's how you fix it. And, and being, being a kind of an unconventional character to begin with, um, he bought it. He said, yeah, yeah, you know, I think you're right. And the bottom line is that, uh, he gave me 33 actors, um, including luminaries who, who at that point weren't anything. I mean, Forrest Whitaker, Johnny Depp, um, Charlie Sheen, uh, Tom Berenger, Willem Dafoe. Yeah. Uh, they weren't names at that point. Uh, who's who. Yeah. Uh, neither. And like you said, uh, neither was Oliver Stone. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, he let me, he let me take them into the mountains of the Philippines, into the jungle mountains, South central Luzon and train them for three weeks and man, no contact whatsoever. They lived like grunts. And, 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 and I, I mean, I was hard on, them. uh, so the upshot was that when we brought them down out of there, they were who we were as 19 year old kids in, in Vietnam. And, and Oliver recognized that. And he said, look, you, you need to help me. We don't have much money. We had less than $10 million to make that entire film. Wow. Um, he said, you got to help me. And, and I want you to be my eyes and ears everywhere. And I was. So I really was used as a military advisor should be used. And of course, the, the upshot is that we, we brought that little film home um, and we showed it around. And uh, lo and behold, it won four Academy Awards, including Best Picture. And Oliver was kind enough to recognize me. I went to the Academy Awards event in my dress blues. Oh, that's great. And uh, 
Yeah, that of course the cameras all came to me, but um, <laughs> but you knew that. Uh, who who yeah, the blue? Right. Um, so uh, he recognized me from the stage uh, as being such a pivotal part of the success of Platoon, and and from that point on, uh, all those people who used to throw me out of their offices and throw me off the lots, they were all calling me. And saying, "Oh, well, you, you got to help us do this, that, and the other," and and that's kind of how it built, how it took off. So, so Warriors Inc. You know, uh, 141 credits in film between uh, between film, television, gaming. Um, probably more than uh, that are on I. Then probably you probably have more than what's on IMDb. Yeah, there's there's a few on I've I've intentionally not included. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, I mean, you got Invaders from Mars on there, but yeah, I got you. Yeah. That, that is well, that, I that was to. the first that's one. An that's, yeah, that's, that's an homage that's the, to Toby Hooper. That's exactly, and that's the first one. You know, you always got to recognize your first where where you started. Um, yeah. Four of those films have gone for nominated for Best Picture. Um, what is one movie um, that you know doesn't get as much recognition that you think should? We talked about we talked about Rough Riders. Um, that I really think is a, is a terrific uh, film. Yeah. Um, but it was it didn't get uh, half the attention that it should have gotten. Um, and and I I'd like to see that one get a little more attention. Um, I think that uh, if you talk about the TV series The Pacific, um, I think we will always live in the shadows of the predecessor, yeah. uh, Band of Brothers. Yeah. Although we we could have done better with the Pacific, but I'd like to see that one get a little more attention. Yeah. Um, and and there are there are some little gems that we've done here and there. Um, we did a we did a film with River Phoenix uh, called Dogfight, uh, directed by Nancy Zavoka, uh, that that I think should have gotten more attention. Mm. Um, so I, you know, there, Hollywood is a, is a really fickle mistress, but, um, you know, there, there is a tendency to, to roll the dice and bet, you know, that this is going to be good and that's going to be good rather than just running it out there and letting the audiences make that decision. Yeah. Uh, so I think those are a couple that I think deserve more attention than they've got. Uh, let's talk about one coming out for our, our, for the military community. Uh, you got a uh, last full measure. Uh, full disclosure: When I walked into the screening of that film, I didn't know what kind of film it was. Meaning, I thought it was a student film or something when I went, when I was at the conference. Mm-hmm. And when I opened that door, and it was during the final act, I was not prepared for Sam Jackson, Sebastian Stan, Christopher Plummer, Ed Harris, William Hurt, and of course, uh, of course, you. Um, this film has some star power behind it. Yeah, it did. Uh, Todd, Todd Robinson, uh, who's the director and the writer, um, took, took that film, uh, which is about a, an Air Force PJ uh, in Vietnam, parachute, uh, jump, uh, parachute jumper rescue uh, guy. Uh, William, um, William Pitsenberger, the very real story yeah. of how it took forever to get his Medal of Honor upgraded. Pitsenberger, yeah. yeah. And and. And Todd, Todd really got into that story. Uh, he brought me in early to talk to him about, you know, about Vietnam and about, uh, you know, how veterans uh, felt and how they did and so on and so forth. We had many, many hours of conversation and, and he cast me uh, in it. Uh, he's, he's a, I didn't know it at the time, but he's a big Dale Dye fan. He'd seen a lot of the stuff I had done, yeah, uh, both in front of the camera and behind the camera. And... Uh, and so, um, and, and he, Todd really worked his bolt 
um, he talked to, I don't know how many people and, and, and called and, and just wanted to get some star power into it. Uh, and, and he, the, the story appealed, I think, uh, to guys like, uh, Sam, uh, Jackson and, uh, and a number of other actors because there are such beautiful emotional pieces in it. Yeah. Uh, and Sebastian Stan did a great job. I thought, yeah. um, and, uh, and I didn't suck, uh, as the, <laughs> as the veteran, uh, congressman. I think you did just but, fine. I think you did great. Uh, I think you did great. Exactly. I loved it. But, uh, but that's another film I'm, I'm afraid might not get, uh, all it deserves. Um, it is a, it is a wonderful story of, of love between veterans. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Who, who, who will not, who will not let those memories and, and the heroism, uh, uh, exhibited by people like uh, Pitts and Barger, they they won't let that go unheralded. No matter how long they have to work, no matter how many hurdles they have to climb, and that's really the story. That's the attraction. I think it's going to mean uh, a lot to that that pararescue community. Community, wouldn't you agree? Oh yeah, 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 absolutely, it will. But but we need to. It needs to mean a lot to the public at large. Yeah, um, yeah, I, and so. We'll see. It's it's due for release in wide release in January. I, you know, I think in the era of Marvel and other comic book films, uh, a lot of funding that traditionally would go to military films are mm-hmm. going to like the, the fantasy and, and comic book genre. You know, <laughs> what else is out there? Yeah. yeah. How important is it for the military community to support military military films like The Last Film Leisure? Yeah, it's it's absolutely vital. Look, uh, Hollywood is a follower, not a leader. Uh, Hollywood will do and make the kind of films that make money. It's that simple. They're businessmen. Yeah, you can say they're creative artists and so on and so forth. Well, that's horse crap. They're, they're businessmen, and, and they're going to pay attention to the bottom line. So as we do these military films, um, the military community, and, and that extends not just to the guys and gals wearing the uniform, but their families, their, their immediate families and their extended families, you, you got to do what you can to get them into the theaters. Um, the, yeah. the plain fact of the matter is that theaters, uh, the theater experience uh, in America is dying mm. uh, because we have a, a generation that's addicted to devices of one kind or another and to streaming and they can get anything they want. But we don't make those films to be seen on your phone. No, you know, no, no. Be seen on on big screens at the very at the very least on your eighty five inch home theater system. If you have, you okay. know? I mean, like yeah, I mean that's that's where the, I think for me, I think that's where a lot of cinema is dying. Is that heck? You could almost almost maybe without the smell of you know the same type of popcorn have that same experience in your home now. It's amazing with the way technology. You can, but but it's a little harder and a little easier and a little more expensive. Maybe uh, absolutely. The point of one hundred percent matter is. The, the, the military community has got to support good films about their experience. 100%. Um, now, Pitsenbarger, he was an airman assisting and rescuing soldiers. Mm-hmm. Did, did they ever support Marines out there in Southeast Asia, the, the pararescue community? Everybody had to support Marines. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and the reason was because, you know, we're, we're typical uh, dollar job on a dime budget. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and, and I, you know, a couple of times I was medevaced. I was medevaced by Army dust-off choppers. Wow. Um, because, you know, the Marine Corps just didn't have the, the kind of assets 
that we needed. And listen, the, the one thing we weren't too proud to do is accept help from anybody. Sure. No, no. If I got you out of a tight spot, uh, you know, I, yeah, I, I, absolutely. I how many grunts I've talked to you, that's like my best friend is, is the wing, you know, <laughs> especially yeah. in a tight spot. You love those air wingers and you love those cannon cockers and yeah. anybody that's going to help you out. Yeah. And, and I certainly know that, you know, the Jolly Greens uh, chased down and rescued a bunch of Marine pilots that were shot down. I, I know that's that's true. Uh, and they were they were wonderful guys. They were absolutely willing to put themselves in harm's way just to save a life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I did a lot of research before today's interview. Your Indiegogo campaign uh, for No Better Place to Die. No Better Place to Die. Yeah. And I wish I would have seen it beforehand when you actually had it out there. It sounds like an amazing story. Um, and it could possibly be your directorial debut. You have like two it projects. Is, yeah. oh, oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. It, well, it's my first unit directorial debut. I've done a bunch of uh, second unit directing. Roger. Uh, but this one I wrote uh, and I'm going to direct. Uh, we've got some wonderful people. Tom Hanks is the executive producer. Um, Gary Sinise is going to play uh, General Ridgeway. And I've got some some wonderful veteran producers who are who are helping me try to get it done. Uh, the big problem right now, Tanner, is is uh, casting. Mm. Um, the budget is about $40 million. And that's, uh, you know, it so it's like the campaign you've been able to receive funding. That's great. Yeah. Uh, but the problem is I can't get all the money I need to get rolling. Um, and that's because I've got to cast it. Um, when, when people are going to give you that much money, they want a little bit of insurance. Yeah. And to them, um, the insurance is casting a list actors. Um, got you. And, and that's what I'm having trouble with. I'm having trouble finding an approved A-list actor who will do the lead role. Um, and, and, and we're working on it. Uh, we just got a, a wonderful letter from Ryan Gosling, who I was pitching to do it. Um, but Ryan has another project that, that would, that would conflict. Uh, so he wrote a great letter saying what a wonderful project it was. And he's sorry he couldn't do it. Mm. Uh, so we're out after we're out after a couple of uh, new guys. We're out after Chris Pine. Um, yeah, uh, we're out after Chris Pine and Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, so we'll we'll see if I can if I can lure one of those guys in, and if I do, uh, the the money will cut loose and we can start rolling. Both on. would be very 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 good choices. Um, yeah. How about old Sebastian Stan there, the old Winter Soldier? Yeah, yeah that, absolutely. And and I wanted Sebastian. In fact, when we were making uh, Last Full Measure, I talked to him about it a little bit. The problem was he's not on the insurance list. Ah, OK. One of the stupid things you have to deal with in Hollywood. Uh, frankly, you know, one, one of my missions with No Better Place is to use as many genuine veterans as I can find. Uh, who can do the job. I saw that in the campaign. Behind the camera and in front of the camera. I'm absolutely committed to doing that. Outstanding. Um, you know, not many people know, and you, you mentioned it earlier or, or talk about it, but you're also an author. You've got 12 books and you eventually started your own publishing company, uh, Warrior, Warriors Publishing Group. It, it was just the same sort of thing. Um, you know, I, I ran out of ways to, uh, to celebrate uh, veterans and, and military people and their stories and so on and so forth. And I said, well, hell, uh, some of them actually do read. Uh, and so we, my wife and I just said, okay, piss on it. You know, let's, let's start a publishing company. We did. And it's grown like Topsy. It's very, very successful. 
I think we've got something like 25 titles out there now, uh, not only my books, but, um, you know, we got we got the rights to uh, John Del Vecchio's 13th Valley uh, and, and several others. And we and, you know, we're, we're really expanding. We're just about to put out our, our first book uh, written by uh, a female combat veteran. Oh, wow. Uh, that's coming up. So so we're you know, it's it's another venue uh, to get those great stories told. No, it's a great way. I, th- I think it's great that you're, you're publishing others uh, in the community. Um, how do you decide which books make the cut and what do authors get out of signing with a publisher now like Warriors Publishing? Well, look, uh, what they get from us uh, is a is a straight up deal. No nonsense, no BS. Uh, we divide profits straight down the line, fifty fifty. Yeah. Um, plus, what they get with us is a is a is an access to the veteran community. Hmm. So the sales in the military communities go way up. So they get that that voice, uh, they get that ear, they get that access to the audience. That's really um, what we provide. Um, and, you know, it gives me a venue. I've got this great series that, that Marines love and you probably haven't written or haven't read. Yeah, you uh, write fiction, right? Like you're, it's like, yeah, oh, it's great. It's, it's the Shake, it's the Shake Davis series. And if you like, if you like Lee Child and Jack Reacher, um, oh, wow. it's that kind of thing. Except that uh, the, the main character, Shake Davis, is a retired Marine chief warrant officer, and uh, and he gets himself in all kinds of problems. And the neat thing is, in every book, uh, there is a, a a reference to Marine Corps history in one fashion or another. Um, Noted. He'll find himself on on some battlefield, or he'll find himself having um, researched uh, the Battle of Chapultepec, for instance, or something like that. And and he gets himself into these adventures. Um, and, and Marines, uh, with the exception of you, uh, Marines love these things. Uh, so, so we sell a lot. That's awesome. Um, back in episode 165, I interviewed Jeff Struker of uh, Black Hawk Down fame, also an yeah. author, both fiction yeah. and nonfiction. And we talked about digital publishing. And how Amazon has changed that entire game. Mm. Uh, what advice would you give a veteran looking at looking at becoming an author and going and trying to make a, a career out of it? Look, simply write. Uh, and a good way to start is blog. Mm. Uh, you know, create a site and, and just start writing and talking about things that interest you. Um, and, and that will allow you to polish your skills with language and polish your skills as a storyteller. And, and as you, if you enjoy it, if you find that that's a great outlet and it's fun for you, uh, then, then look for a a big story that you can tell in a book, uh, and go to, if, if I could give them one advice is, is watch the New York publishing arena. Hmm. Uh, it's old school. And and they they may publish your book, but they're not going to support it and they're not going to push it and they're not going to spend a lot of money to promote you and your story. Um, unless you happen to be Tom Clancy or Lee Child or somebody like that. Or someone with a movie uh, deal. <laughs> yes. Or somebody with a pending movie deal. Yeah. Uh, and so and so look for these independent publishers. There's a bunch of them in Florida. We're one. Um, and they're out there. And they'll get your stories out. And and those are the publishers that the military audience goes to yeah. because they know we get it. Uh, but before you do anything, 
Uh, find out if you're really a writer. Find out if you're really a storyteller. Um, and you do that by, by just writing. By mm. Tell a little story, six paragraphs, five paragraphs, four paragraphs. See if you can tell a story that's an entertaining fashion. See if you're facile with language. See if you can see if your vocabulary is sufficient to use the right words and the interesting words and and just find out if you're a writer. If you are, go for broke. Very good. Very good. Dale, what's one thing that you learned in service that you apply to what you what you've done in your post-military career? Well, I've learned dedication and endurance. Uh, I've learned to deal with adversity. Um, I've learned, I think, that um, no matter how tough life seems, it could damn sure be tougher. Um, and and you've got to be open and I think appreciative and loving of everybody that's around you. Um, you, you can't lock yourself off and get yourself all twisted around your personal axle. Um, you've got to be open and understanding. And Lord knows you've got to have a sense of humor. Um, and, and the Marine Corps, the Marine Corps taught me that. Absolutely. Uh, so, so I think it's a matter of perspective and endurance. Those things are, are, I think qualities that the Marine Corps engineers into us, uh, whether it's at Paris Island or San Diego or Quantico, they engineer those things into us. And as a result of those, um, we have a great empathy and understanding for, for all kinds of people around us. And that's invaluable no matter what you do with the rest of your life. Very good. One other question that we ask every guest on the show is, is, is there a nonprofit or a veteran in the veteran space that's a good example for the veteran community that you see right now? I think very few people do as much uh, for the veteran community writ large as Gary Sinise's, uh, the Gary Sinise Foundation. Those, those guys led by Gary just do magic uh, for veterans. Uh, I love the disabled American veterans. They do magic. Yeah. Um, and and I think if, if you're bound and determined to do something, those would be good places to start. Um, I love I love the American Legion and the Veterans of Foreign Wars. I think both of those organizations do a, an, an enormous uh, amount for veterans, not so overtly, uh, but just as a as a place in a community. Uh, I think they're wonderful. Um and, and there's, there's all kinds of them out there. Uh, it's not hard to find one that interests you and that you can support. Absolutely. Dale, is there anything else that I might have missed that you think it's important <laughs> to share? Frankly, no. Uh, I hope I've done my research well. <laughs> yeah, you have. You're scary with that. I mean, Christ, you brought up stuff I didn't even remember myself. But anyway, um, it's really a delight uh, to, to talk to somebody who gets it. Uh, who asks the right questions and who listens um, and who has uh, a podcast audience like you do. I mean, uh, if, if, if you missed anything, I don't know what the hell it would have been. Nice work. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Dale. I served in Vietnam. I served in World War II. I served in Afghanistan. And VA serves us all. No matter when you served. No matter if you saw combat or not. There are benefits for veterans of every generation. See what VA can do for you. To learn what benefits you may be eligible for, 
visit www.va.gov. That's www.va.gov. I want to thank Dale for saying yes to be on the show without hesitation. You can find more about Warriors Inc. at warriorsinc.com, more about Warriors Publishing at warriorspublishing.com. You can also follow the film No Better Place to Die and its development at nobetterplacetodie.com. And the last full measure is set to release January 17th, 2020, nationwide in theaters. You know, like we talked about in the interview, in the era of the comic book and fantasy movie, which are great in of themselves, it is important to support good military film. So those stories keep getting told as well. November is also Native American Heritage Month, and this week's Born the Battle Veteran of the Week is Marine Corps and Army veteran Mitchell Red Cloud. Mitchell served in the Marines from August 11th, 1941 to November 9th, 1945 during World War II. He also served in the Army from 1948 to 1950 during the Korean War. Mitchell was born in Hatfield, Wisconsin, as a member of the Ho-Chunk Native American Nation. He dropped out of high school to enlist in the Marine Corps. He was assigned to the Pacific Theater after the attack on Pearl Harbor, and as an infantryman, he served on the islands of Guadalcanal and Okinawa. Mitchell refused medical discharge after falling ill with a tropical disease on Guadalcanal. He also sought frequent combat and was honorably discharged from the Marine Corps in 1945 after being wounded on Okinawa. Upon returning to the United States, Mitchell got married and had a daughter. Mitchell then rejoined the military in 1948 as an Army infantryman. His unit was assigned to, and I hope I'm saying this right, Kyushu, Japan, and later to the Korean Peninsula. On 5 November 1950, Mitchell was occupying a listening post in front of his company's base near, and again, I hope I'm saying this right, Chongyang, North Korea. From there, we're not going to go into the medal citation, but a write-up that cites five different publications that I think goes into a little bit more detail. On the night of 5 November, E Company 2nd Battalion, 19th Infantry, was holding positions on Hill 123 near Chongyong, just north of the river. Red Cloud, then a corporal, was manning a forward listening post in front of his company's command post position on the hill. In the middle of the night, he began hearing suspicious noises before spotting a number of Chinese troops intent on surprising the Americans. Red Cloud raised the alarm and began firing on the advancing Chinese troops with the BAR. The assistant BAR man with him in their foxhole was killed by the Chinese returning fire. Red Cloud was then shot twice in the chest. Despite these wounds, and after being attended by the company platoon medic, he refused to withdraw from his post and continued to fire accurately on the Chinese troops, which caused significant casualties among the advancing force. Crucially, his actions alerted his company to the impending attack, preventing the ambush. After he was hit again and attended to by the same medic, Red Cloud propped himself up against a tree and continued to fire, exposing himself to intense Chinese fire. He was shot at least eight times in the firefight, 
suffering from severe injuries and too weak to support himself. He ordered a soldier near him to tie him upright to a tree using that soldier's web belt and then ordered these men to withdraw with the other wounded men to the main positions. Eventually, the Chinese overran Red Claw's position and the hill. Red Claw's actions gave E Company time and warning to blunt the Chinese offensive, eventually repelling the attack. His actions are also credited with allowing his company to evacuate several others wounded in the attack. When members of the 2nd Battalion returned to the hill and arrived at Red Claw's position to recover his body the next morning, they found it surrounded by a large number of dead Chinese troops. For this action, Mitchell Red Cloud was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor. And the medal was given to his mother in 1951. An army camp in South Korea, a Navy ship, a memorial park, and several other locations have been named in his honor. We here at Born the Battle honor his service. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a Born the Battle Veteran of the Week, you can. Just email us at podcast at va.gov, include a short write-up or a link, and let us know why you would like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. If you like this episode and haven't subscribed yet, please do. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, pretty much any podcatching app known to cell phone, computer, tablet, or man. And as always, for more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website at blogs.va.gov and follow the VA on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, RallyPoint, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, no matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. Have a great and safe Marine Corps birthday and Veterans Day. We'll see you right back here on November 13th. Take care. If, if somebody has listened to the entire episode, I like, mm-hmm. to th- I like to thank them sometimes with a, I call it the after the show show, after the music stopped, after everything stopped, sure. there yeah. might be one story that they'll get that may, that nobody else would have gotten. What would be that one story for Dale Dye? Could be in the military, could be out of the military. I think, I think one of the funny stories, um, and it's become a bit apocryphal is, uh, we'll, we'll go back to platoon for instance. Um, when I brought the actors to the field, uh, you know, I told them, you can't take anything, uh, no, no phones, no nothing but what I issue you that goes in your rucksack and that's all you're going to have to live with and so on and so forth. And, and as we, uh, as we marched out to the training grounds and this is in the Philippines and we're going up a jungle mountain in, in South central Luzon. And, um, and I had arranged for the special effects guy by the name of a man by the name of Yves de Bono mm. um, to implant some charges along the trail side because I wanted them immediately. And this is the first day of training. I wanted them immediately to get the idea that 
ambushes uh, and 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 the the nature of combat is so iffy. Uh, and so as we walked up this trail, I saw him and I gave a little signal and he set off about six demolition charges on either side of the trail. And I screamed at the guys to get down, get down, get down, return fire, return fire. And of course they were absolutely panicked. They had <laughs> be no a fly idea on the wall for that. Absolutely. And they're, and they're down in these holes and nobody's firing back. And I had issued them blank ammunition, 10 rounds of blank ammunition with their M16 rifles. And I kept screaming for them to load that weapon and fire back, load that weapon and fire back. And nobody's doing it. So I figured, look, I, this has got to be leadership by example. So I jumped over to the position where Charlie Sheen and an actor by the name of Ivan Kane and uh, Johnny C. McGinley were grouped together. Yeah. And I grabbed Charlie Sheen's M16 and it was unloaded. There was no magazine in it and everything else. And I said, God damn it. Give me a magazine. Give me a magazine. And Ivan Kane reaches in his rucksack and pulls out a copy of Time. The magazine. <laughs> You're kidding that, me. That, You're kidding you know, me. He didn't know what a magazine was. You know, if I just said clip or something, he'd probably. So, so he, he with, with his eyes, you know, as big as saucers, he hands me the Time magazine. And I said, no, you idiot. You know, and I finally got uh, a magazine for the 16 in and locked and loaded and put some rounds out. And then they finally learned the lesson. But, uh, but maybe, maybe that's a little uh, interesting story that hasn't been told much. That is some bearing right there. For you not to not to just laugh at him. <laughs> well, I did. I mean, I was about to fall out, but I had to. I had to maintain, you know, and get the weapon. Absolutely, absolutely.